Our Bible reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 18, on page 307 of your Blue Bible. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Methag Amah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer, brought them to Jerusalem from Teba and Berothai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When too, king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Himelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Zeruiah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerathites and Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Thank you, Bing, and very well done on reading all those names in a fairly tricky passage. Well, I want to start today by asking you a question. What do you think is at the heart of the many problems faced by our world today? It's a rhetorical question. You don't need to shout out coronavirus or something like that. But I also want you to note, I ask what's at the heart of our problems, not simply what our greatest problems are. If I asked you what our problems are, that's fairly easy. You might say the economy, climate change, population growth, how the rich take advantage of the poor, domestic violence, just to name a few. But my question was actually a little harder. What's at the heart of why we face such problems as humanity? 
that's one that requires some reflection. And how people have sought to answer that has differed across time. And even today, we'd get many different answers across the world's cultures and generations. Yet if I were to paint with broad brushstrokes the predominant view in the West at least, I think it goes something like this. Well, the world has its problems, sickness, natural disasters, limited resources, yet it is what it is. We can't change it. And when it comes to humanity, there are, of course, a few really bad eggs causing all sorts of misery, but generally, we're all good people at heart, and while personally we could all do a little better, the big problems are beyond us. It's global corporations that are to blame, those darn politicians. We need better leadership, a better vision to tackle our problems. And if that's at the heart of the world's problems, if that's accurate, which I think it is a fairly accurate take on what our society thinks, they could then rightly ask, well, what does the church have to offer? How can their Jesus help? And they might respond, well, maybe a little, you know, I do want to do a little bit better myself and Jesus had some pretty good one-liners, he's a good example that we can learn from. But he's one among many and he doesn't podcast. And the church, well, maybe they can be part of the solution, caring for the poor perhaps. Maybe if the Christian private schools aren't too Christian and just uh, allow our kids to live well. But Jesus and the church are just one possible part answer among many. So most have a take it or leave it kind of attitude because to our world, church and Jesus are really not that important in addressing our world's greatest problems. Yet, if we ask God the same question, if we ask the God of the Bible and listen to his word, what's at the heart of our problems, the Bible reveals a very different answer. And it's actually much worse than we think. I've started some prep work on the book of Romans in the Bible as we're starting a major series on that mid-August this year. And if you're familiar with Romans, it starts off with the most expansive and articulate explanation in the Bible of our world's biggest problem, according to God. That since the world was created, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, yet there's an active suppression of this truth by humanity. There's an active choice neither to glorify God or to give thanks to Him. We didn't, as humanity, think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That actually humanity has deeply offended and rebelled against the very personal God. And in response, God has actively uh, responded in wrath, giving us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. Our minds have been given over to darkness as well. We don't think straight as we should. And we're actually at the point now, as society, of encouraging one another in our sin and rebellion against God, thinking that we are the wise and can live without God. Three and a half chapters into Romans, the summary of this opening description of this problem comes as this in chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and together they have become worthless, and there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, many a Christian, of course, still struggle with that being God's assessment of the problem. But to our world today, this is just flat-out unacceptable. 
The majority of the West still believe in God in some form, but the picture of God that we have put forward by most is kind of akin to a kindly old grandfather figure who simply wants the best for his extended family. The thought that our world's biggest problem is God's active response to our deeply personal and intentional rejection of him, well, that is an offence to humanity. Yet, it's the Bible's take God's perspective on the heart of the problem. And when you put it like that, as I just did, you'd have to say it is much worse than we would ever think or come up with for ourselves. Yet as the book of Romans does, it then moves from God revealing the depths of the problem to what God has done as a solution because of his great love for each one of us. God reveals an unstoppable plan to bring people back into relationship with him, to be forgiven to be blessed, to be given a place in his family again under his loving rule for all eternity. A plan that has Jesus and his church at the very centre of all things. And God's solution, we discover, is far greater than we could ever invent or imagine. We will finish there at the end of the sermon, but for now I just want to make the simple point that if we ask our world what the biggest problems are and we as humans don't get it right with the wrong diagnosis of the problem, trying to present Jesus then as the answer to the wrong problem just doesn't work. Yet if we let God through his word show us that our world's greatest problem is with him, and actually it's much worse than we thought, it's pretty easy then to see Jesus as God's most wonderful solution. Now, what has all of this got to do with 2 Samuel 8, I hear you say? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I wanted to kind of use 2 Samuel chapter 8 to prove the theory that with our diagnosis of what's wrong with the world, if we have a wrong diagnosis, 2 Samuel 8 is pretty uh, kind of offensive to our ears. It makes no sense. But with the Bible's diagnosis of our world's greatest problem, being with God, it makes total sense and is actually part of some really good news that tracks across the Bible about what God has done for us in Christ. So let's get to it and we'll be great to have your Bibles open to page 307 as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 8 together. The first section here in verses 1 to 6 I've titled The Conflict and Conquests of the Kingdom there in your outline because you'd have to say there's a fair bit of conflict and conquest going on and if you add up the number of people killed there's a fair amount of blood spilled. Defeating and subduing the Philistines, verse 1, the Moabites, verse 2, the son of the king of Zobar, verse 3, and the Arameans of Damascus who joined the fray, verse 5. And we're left a little bit puzzled and shocked by David making the Moabites lie down and measuring off uh, them, killing two-thirds of them, and allowing one-third to live subject to him. And even the careful reader of the Old Testament is still a little puzzled by the whole chariot thing and the hamstringing of the horses in verse 7. In David's day, amongst God's people, trusting in chariots was seen as the equivalent of not trusting in God, so they weren't to accumulate them. So we'd kind of understand then if David got rid of all of them. But keeping a hundred chariot horses? Was David toying with the idea of experimenting with this new piece of military hardware? We're not told. We have questions. Yet what is clear is at the end of verse 6 there. It is the Lord who gave David victory wherever he went. 
And with our world's misunderstanding of our greatest problems, it's very easy to object to this and write the whole episode off as there's trouble in the Middle East again and see David as simply another wannabe ruler taking advantage of his military might. And to decry that religion is the source of so much war and violence, just imagine a world without it, nothing to kill or die for, living as one. Maybe someone should write a song about that, just imagine. (laughs) Yet the Bible comes at all of this from a very different direction. God has promised to re-establish his kingdom rule, one of justice, peace and joy, from a God longing to be with the people that he's making his own, giving them security and rest from all their enemies. What we see today is another step in his grand plan that spans across the world and across time to bring blessing to all nations of the earth and bring people into his family for all eternity, from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. Simply because it is God's goodwill. He was unwilling to let the story of our world end with our rebellion against his loving will and all the terrible implications that flow from it. David is not perfect, to be sure, and we still have some questions about his actions here. But it is very clear from 2 Samuel that he is God's appointed king to establish a tangible and visible presence of God's rule here on earth. And if our world's greatest problem is humanity's rejection of God's loving rule over us, and that persists to our day... What we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is a pattern that is true of the kingdom of God both then and now. That people and nations are not standing around willing to welcome God's rule over their lives. And there's actually an active opposition against it. So God engages in conflict, establishing a tangible presence of his kingdom here on earth through battle and through conquest. And when we talk about the kingdom of God here on earth, it's the establishment of a community of people living willingly under God's loving rule, experiencing his blessing, as was meant to be from the beginning before humanity's rebellion against God. Post-Jesus, that community is tangibly represented by God's church here on earth, stretched right across the globe wherever Christians meet. Whether it's a dozen in an underground church in China or a great gathering of joy and singing in Africa, Scots may be trudging through the cold to meet together in Jesus' name. Between the cross of Jesus and his rising to new life and his final return as the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness, we are very clearly directed not to expand it here on earth by force. I'm not arguing for uh, a military wing for the church, nor to engage in physical conflict. Jesus gives his disciples a very different mission, a much more joyful mission. We get to proclaim the good news of Jesus as king, a story of great grace and of God's great love for a rebellious humanity. But the pattern here is the same. The ongoing establishment of God's kingdom here on earth takes place amongst fierce opposition. Yet the Bible speaks to us of a great future where God's rule is uncontested once more, of a world recreated without blemish, 
where, God, where the kingdom of God exists in all of its fullness, with joy, peace and security and blessing beyond our imagination. But to achieve it, given our world's active rebellion against God, Jesus, we are told, will return with power and with might, both to save his people, but also to conquer all who continue to stand against his kingship, just like David does here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now that's a side of Jesus that we don't often focus on in church. We tend to mute that side of his kingship. But we're told about it clearly in Scripture, both Old Testament and New. For our note-takers, have a read through Psalm 2 tonight. Or from the New Testament, have a read through 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. I've chosen a passage from Isaiah to share this aspect of Jesus' kingship. And it's from chapter 11, and I'll pop it up on screen now. As prophetically, it speaks about God's chosen and ultimate King Jesus. Where we're told a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now there's an image here of great power in Jesus, both fearsome but right, establishing the king's justice for the sake of his people. Now I think we don't get it and are not drawn to it we don't cry out for justice like this in the West because most of us, we, you know, in the economy of things around the world, we are the wealthy, we are the privileged, we are the ones who have power of choice over our own destiny. We are not suffering and seeing our children die from starvation and other preventable diseases. We don't live with the threat of armies coming into our communities and imposing terror and tyrannical rule. And you only need to look as far as the stock market or the supermarket this week in the toilet paper aisle to see the panic that grips us when there's a problem that can actually affect people like us that we can't control. The world's poor live with threats like this far greater and far more preventable every day of their lives. They are used to the great injustice and watch the world's powerful getting a leg up off their back. Real justice, King Jesus' justice, is what so many in our world cry out for and Jesus will bring it in a way that we've never experienced. As our Isaiah passage shows us, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. God's justice brought by Jesus, is a great thing for our world because God is wholly good. Intentional play on words. And as our passage goes on to say, part of establishing his justice is to bring destruction by conquest over those who oppose it. 
King David's conquest here in 2 Samuel 8 is but a small picture of the conquest and ultimate and awesome King Jesus will bring. Verses 7 to 14 then bring us some relief and also teach us something great about the kingdom of God. We see there David's desire to dedicate the spoils of war to God and ultimately bring great wealth to the kingdom of God and are used for his glory. But nestled in amongst it all, we have the story of Tau, king of Hamath. Read with me from verse 9. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadazah, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle with, over Hadadazah who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought him articles of silver, gold and bronze. Now, I'm not trying to overread this. I'm sure there's a good measure of political expediency here and rejoicing that David had defeated a common enemy. But I also think it's included here in the story to function as a ray of light amidst all the destruction and death of battle. To show us that some actually do lay down their arms and simply make peace with the king. There is a choice here. There's something illustrated about the kingdom, a pattern of the kingdom that continues today, as there is for every person on the planet with King Jesus. We too can lay down our arms and make peace. And the last point from our passage here, before we draw it all together, comes from verses 15 to 18 which I don't think are throwaway lines at the end of a chapter. Read with me verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And all the names and positions that come after that that were so well read for us simply create a picture of good order and great administration. And that part of David being a great king was doing what was just and right for all the people again showing us something great about the pattern of the kingdom of God and of what King Jesus will bring, that great sense of justice and doing good for all his people. And for all who take Jesus as their king, we will experience this in all of its fullness upon Jesus' return after that great and final conquest. Yet, like it was typical of David's reign, so it is something that should be typical of God's church here on earth today, that we are a people passionate about doing what is just and right and that will spur one another on to love and good deeds in the name of our King. That we would be the trustworthy employees or employers who do what is just and right with our staff and customers, participating in the many communities that we are a part of where we can be relied upon as people who will do what is just and right. So let's pull it all together now. If we let God, through his word, outline what's at the heart of the problems of our world, that we all reject God's loving rule over our lives, we actively suppress the truth that God reveals to us, deeply and personally offending a holy God and that all the world's problems actually flow from God's wrath against this rebellion and the sin and futility that we plunge headlong into, it is then great news that God brings a solution to this most terrible of problems because of his great love for all humanity. 
that despite ongoing opposition against his good and rightful rule, given his kingdom is one to be marked by justice like this world has never seen, blessing that we cannot comprehend, it is great news that at the heart of God's plan, King Jesus actually comes to bear the weight of God's wrath against our sin, taking its full punishment upon the cross to turn away God's wrath forever from all of his kingdom subjects who willingly come to Jesus and lay down their arms and claim their place in the kingdom of God under his loving rule. It's a good thing that King Jesus promises to return to bring peace, security and joy like this world has never seen and defeat every bit of rebellion that endures against his reign. If the heart of all the world's problems is rebellion against him and God goes to such lengths to offer grace, the forgiveness of sins and a place in his kingdom forever through Jesus in a plan that led Jesus to the cross to accomplish it, if this offer of grace is spurned, what other remedy is there? It's a good thing that King Jesus will not let this ongoing rebellion derail his plan to bring peace and justice. It's a good thing that he has the strength and will to conquer every form of opposition against his kingship. And God's church here on earth today is the outpost of the kingdom of God, showing the world as imperfectly and incompletely as we do what it actually means to willingly live under Jesus' kingship a community of people who have laid down their arms against God and embraced the offer, this gracious offer, of the free pardon for sins. A pardon that is free to us, but was won at great expense by our King Jesus on the cross. And then together we get to hold out this news of eternal life, of a renewed relationship with God. And as we've seen through 2 Samuel so far, a God who delights to be with his people, who speaks so tenderly of his kingdom as being one where every tear is wiped away, a kingdom described always with celebration and great feasting, where we can be with him and all his kingdom subjects without fear, without opposition, secure forever. Our world's problems are much worse than we think. Yet God's solution is far better than we could have ever imagined or invented. And this has some applications for us. If you're here today checking out who Jesus is, I realise the limitations of how far we can move in 25 minutes. But as a church, we want to continue to hold out opportunities to share and have you ask questions about everything regarding Jesus' kingship. One of the many ways we do that is running our life series uh, which is people checking out who Jesus is for the first time or Church and Jesus for the first time in a long time. It starts next Sunday. It begins with a meal. We have a tab of drinks on the bar. You think, if all of this even has a chance of being true, what have I to lose? Four Sundays of my life and they're going to give me free food and drink. <laughs> because if this is true, it changes everything. And you'll discover that Jesus really is a great, great king to live for, and to willingly lay down our arms against. And for those of us here who have been disciples of Jesus for a while, 
it's easy just to let the world continue to roll on thinking that Jesus is just maybe some example to live for and experiencing a church community is something that's okay for some who like that kind of thing. When in reality, we've been charged by Jesus to hold out this good news of eternal life to all, to be very clear on both the problem but also God's solution. Inviting someone to life is one way you can do that. We've got many people trained to read the Bible one-to-one and there's all sorts of ways we want to continue to think through that in our life together. Because if this is an accurate diagnosis of the problem, which, of course, biblically we want to claim that it is, we want to be much more on the front foot holding out both the problem and God's great solution to many. I'm going to close now in prayer as the band come up. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your kindness to us. Uh, We thank you um, that in your wisdom you have uh, revealed to us through your word the great depths of the great problems that our world faces, that at the heart of all things is a very personal and offensive rejection of you and your wrath against sin and a giving over us into sin uh, to plunge us in uh, to all sorts of problems in our world. We thank you so much, Lord, that this being a problem far beyond us to solve in our own strength, that you loved your world and that you loved us enough to actually send King Jesus into this world to die on the cross for our sins and to establish your kingdom here on earth amongst fierce opposition against your rule. We thank you for the insight in which we see from that from 2 Samuel 8 uh, about the fierceness of this opposition but also your power against it. We thank you that we see that um, the outcome uh, is uh, one of decision uh, where any person can come to you and simply lay down their arms and acknowledge our great King Jesus as their own. And we pray for our church community as well that we too uh, might be a people uh, showing to a world great light on what it means to actively live with Jesus as our King, with his great concern of justice and doing what is right in the sight of all to be our great concern as we hold out these words of eternal life to many. Please uh, use these great truths to strengthen our resolve Uh, to be clear in our world, defining both the problem and your great solution delivered to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us as a church many opportunities to share this great news with many. And please uh, help us uh, commit ourselves to this as our life's task, as part of Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey all that you have revealed to us. Lord Jesus, we uh, entrust ourselves to you. We uh, look to you daily uh, for strength to fulfil the mission that you have given us. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' precious and very powerful name. Amen.